Let's begin with prayer. Father, thank You for this evening. Lord, as we close this day and this night on Your day, we pray that we be strengthened and nourished and energized by the Gospel of Your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the One who came and bled and died and rose the third day according to the Scriptures and appeared to many witnesses, even 500 at once, and last of all to Paul. And we thank You, Father, for the testimony that was given so that we might have life and life more abundantly. We pray you protect us on all sides from all evil. We pray you receive our thanksgiving and our praise tonight. And we're so thankful, Lord, that when we're weak, you're strong. And we're thankful, Lord, that even though we hold to the truth, Lord, uh, we can never hold to the truth so tightly as you hold tightly to us. We thank you that you hold us fast, that your promise is to do so forever. And that, Father, the strength of our lives and the power of our lives belongs solely to you. We pray you bless us this evening with the encouragement of your word and the hope of the scriptures. And that, Lord, you would add blessing upon each one that is gathered. For we trust you to do this and more. For Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, we are in the Psalms, Psalm 1, and I'll read the text here. Um, we're looking tonight at David's daily routine, and I think what you'll find in this text, as I found, uh, is really a great pattern for the Christian life in Psalm 1. And I've read it hundreds of times at least, uh, and realized uh, when you study it how little I, I knew of it. And, I, and it should be that way. When we read Scripture, we always discover uh, more, but in this case, it really helped me to see something entirely new. Well, it says in Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff the wind drives away. And therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word, Christ's word for Christ's kings and queens. Amen. Well, as we look at this text, we, we uh, are trying to find foremost the background of these psalms. And the background of this particular psalm um, enters us into a period of time with David and his early life. And um, using Eric Lane's little commentary on the subject, and so I'm following that, and I believe uh, that he taps into some things to help us study through the Psalms chronologically. So we're not going to be at Psalm 2 next week. We'll be at a, a different Psalm um, next week. We'll be in Psalm 26, um, a Psalm on the Sabbath. And, and what we, we find is entering into the period of David, we've looked at the period of Moses, now we're going to the period of David, is um, these, these are Psalms from David's early pastoral life. It's, his life as a, as a young shepherd. Um, if you remember a little bit about David, he was out shepherding while 
the brothers were called in, especially during the selection of uh, the first king there of Israel. But let me just read, because uh, I think Eric Lane gives a good introduction to this whole period of David's um, life and also take us into an introduction on the psalm itself. So, The majority of the psalms come from the time of David, uh, Lane says here, in fact, well over a hundred. Many come from the hand of David himself as the supreme poet and musician in all scripture. David's psalms cover the whole of his life and reign. Beginning in his youth, while he worked as a shepherd, even the earliest psalms indicate that notwithstanding his youth and lowly occupation, he was well educated. No doubt, this was because Bethlehem, his home, was an important national and religious center. The fact that it had elders, 1 Samuel 16.4, may indicate the existence of some kind of meeting place for worship and instruction. There may even been a community of Levites and prophets. And since the death of Samuel's sons, Shiloh had fallen into disuse as the center of worship and sacrifices were offered to the Lord in the principal towns of which Bethlehem was one, 1 Samuel 16, 2. And that was why Samuel was able to say truthfully that he was going there to offer sacrifice. Again, 1 Samuel 16, verse 2. Now, if sacrifice was offered, Levites must have been operating there, one of whose duties was the education of the boys. Not only would they be taught the Hebrew language and the law of Moses, but they would also be taught music and poetry. The prophets may have helped in this since composing songs for worship was part of their ministry. First Chronicles 25, 2-5. David would be taught these skills and he quickly showed his proficiency in them. First Samuel 16, 18 claims he had a reputation for playing the harp. Uh, the Septuagint says he made an organ, which then would simply mean pipes played with the mouth. So little tip there for my daughter, Julie, you know, it's like a harmonica, probably something along the lines, a little key in on that. Well, David used his gifts, at least at first, for purely private devotion. And being away from society, most of the time he occupied his mind with the contemplation of God and his ways since he had no one to whom to preach his thoughts apart from his sheep. He expressed them in poetry and music. Okay, so that's the introduction to the period of David's life we're looking at um, that we'll be in for a little bit. Now, there's going to be six psalms in this early period of David's life. Psalm 1, 26. We've already looked at 23. we we have uh, Psalm 19, 139, and Psalm 8. Those are the six psalms that appear. 126, 23, 19, 139, and 8. These cover the time period prior to his anointing by Samuel. The time between that and his first visit to Saul's court. The time after his return from the court up to the, up to the fight with Goliath. And his brief return home after the fight. Let me just add here, when we're looking at the psalms, there's two big errors that we could make about this. One, we can make the Psalms completely about us um, and miss Christ in the midst. Or we can make them completely about Christ and, and, and miss the fact that we're in Christ. And therefore, these Psalms are meant to be brought to bear in our own lives and to be experienced in the sense that we go um, and we apply many of these insofar as we can apply them 
to our lives. And the emotions that are brought in here are emotions that would identify with every one of us. Times of sorrow, times of joy, times of confusion, times of clarity. Um, Psalm 1, um, David is meditating by the river. This psalm is composed by one who is well aware of the difference between good and evil, between the wicked and the righteous, between the word of God and the way of sinners. He is one who's meditated on this as he's observed what was happening in the natural world. You'll notice that about a lot of the scriptural authors. I think of James, for example, who uses a lot of uh, imagery of the things around him. And where does he get that from? Jesus did the same thing, using the things in the culture around him, uh, especially the commerce, uh, the work that was out and about, as well as the natural creation. And um, so, and, and again, this is the Lord's world. This is, um, you know, the natural world. We're talking about God's creation. David was such, such a one, although anonymous, this psalm fits well with the early life of David as a shepherd. He would often sit beside streams of water while his sheep drank from them. He would notice the tree planted by the stream and see how healthy it was compared with the one on dry ground struggling to keep its leaf from withering. He would see this as a picture of the difference between the godly and the ungodly. In the fields, he would see the corn being harvested, the good ears stored and the chaff blown away by the wind. And from this, he would draw a lesson of God's judgment on the wicked. These impressions that he formed at an early age were with him all of his life. So that's the introduction to this first psalm. Hopefully it gives you a picture at what, what is really being um, set forth as we look at, at, uh, at Psalm 1. Now, when we... Look at the psalm in addition, and again, still borrowing uh, from Lane, um, that this, this psalm speaks of God's law. And so we need to have a little bit of in, introduction as to what does that mean when he says the meditation on God's law. And um, <clears throat> Lane says here, the psalm chosen to open the collection roots it firmly in the whole tradition of God's revealed truth. It is the conviction of one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, the scriptures, or those which existed at the time were known as, quote, the law of the Lord. And um, for the word Torah, T-O-R-A-H, it means more than just a code of rules. It is the instruction or knowledge that God has revealed. So you might be prone to think, okay, he meditates on the law, so I'm just going to meditate on the Ten Commandments. That's not exactly what's going on here. He's meditating on the body of instruction or knowledge that God has revealed, his, his revelation. So what he had of the Word, he meditated on. And so whatever we see by example in that, we have far more to meditate on. Um, so he's revealed. God has revealed these things. He has revealed things contained in history, wisdom books, as well as laws. The Psalms are part of the tradition and although many are personal reflections about individual experience, these are all still the word of God. It might, be, um, it might be easy to think that only propositional truth is God's word, only commands is God's word, only the first five books of the Bible are God's word. 
And in some groups, some sects, if you would call them, S-E-C-T-S, they, they built their whole argument on this. If you remember the Sadducees, they only accepted the first five books of, of uh, the Bible, the law, as the Torah. And when they accepted only that, um, Jesus condescended to them. And he rebuked them for how they were wrong about their view of rejecting the resurrection. Uh, even bringing to him a case about a man marrying several and saying, whose wife will she be? And he said, isn't that why you're wrong that in the uh, resurrection you're not, you're not giving or taking in marriage, but you're like the angels of heaven and so forth. And so he rebukes that, showing that the Pharisees were actually right when it came to the doctrine of the resurrection. That was the big debate between both of those sects. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees said, we only accept the first five books of the Bible. Well, when David meditated on the law of God, of course it would include those books, but it would also include any scripture that was available to meditate upon. Now, um, when we look here, the justification for the claim of this meditation on the Word of God um, really lies in the spiritual standing of the writers who are the righteous, so-called, because they delight in the Word of a righteous God. And they're distinguished from the wicked who don't. The prayers and complaints come from those who, because of their righteousness, are opposed by the wicked. And the praises are addressed to a righteous God who steps in on behalf of the righteous. Although the psalm is written in the third person, we may take it as the writer's personal testimony. He finds his happiness in avoiding the company of the wicked for the reasons that he gives here. So let's just stop right there and enter into what we would call the sermon proper here. And that is, what is going on with David where he, like Eric Lane introduces, is able to give happiness as a testimony by avoiding the company of the wicked? What reasons are given in this? And we see, we see kind of a threefold setting forth of David. I'm taking it as David's daily routine. I think it pictures to us, David, just like uh, we read in the earlier introduction, David is observing things while he is beginning his day. He's observing things as he begins his work. He's observing things as the night comes to an end. Just kind of like today, we begin the day, we spend time worshiping the Lord and praising Him. We're ending the day at night returning to that which we'd be thankful for, to our God. And the Lord's day is for our rest and for us to be energized so that we might work well in the six days given and rest, um, which is interesting in the Christian church. We're not resting on the seventh. We're actually beginning the week with rest, which is really a gospel commendation because if you think about it, we were taught it's not by works, it's by grace. So we begin the week resting in the Lord. And that's how we can go and do the works of the Lord. Right? Um, and the works of the Lord don't just embody spiritual things that we think are spiritual because they involve religion. 
all of every vocation, all of every lawful work, from the home to the workplace to the politics and in between, anything that we are called to do as Christians and we're given to do in our power is really a religious exercise because we cannot separate or compartmentalize the faith. The faith impacts everything we do. But what's curious about David's daily routine, you got to imagine he's a young man at this point. And this is really a personal testimony of how he was able to be happy in avoiding the company of the wicked by virtue of really his own circumstance, which he didn't choose. Um, likely he, he was he would he was a lot at this circumstance in his life. This was something that was given to him in his life. This was, this vocation was handed to him to be a shepherd, and evidently it wasn't the most honorable vocation. It was a vocation that, as a young man, put him away from his family, away from others, and really isolated him. Not by his own choosing. Sometimes we think of Psalm 1 as this is about the willpower of one to avoid the wicked. And certainly a lesson could be drawn because Paul draws a lesson later in the New Testament saying that bad company corrupts good morals. And we should be concerned about no matter the strongest of us in the room should be concerned about the crowd we hang around. And we could, we could go into a whole lesson about that, but I don't think Psalm 1 is actually about that. I think Psalm 1 is showing us a young man who really is placed into this. He's called into this vocation um, through the means of his family, and he is set apart in solitude, not necessarily by his own choice. And the real dilemma comes. He's placed into this solitude of an environment by himself with a bunch of sheep and he's away from his family he's away from people and he could at that moment take time to pity himself he could take time to be disgruntled he could take time to be sad about life he could take time um, really to go in a whole other direction than he does but what we see here in his daily routine the first thing you see is that While he is in solitude, he takes time to get alone with the Lord. And he rejoices. And you really, what what could you do? If you're if he was set alone, he could sit there and pout and be discontent, saying, I wish I was doing something else. I wish I was around people. I wish all these things. But that's not what David does. David in verse one says. Literally, the blessedness of a man, of the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, who stands not nor stands in the way of sinners or sits in the seat of scoffers. In other words, he he counts his experience actually to be a blessed circumstance. I'm actually, he's saying, I'm actually in a position where I am blessed. The blessedness of the man who is not walking in the counsel of the wicked, standing in the way of sinners, sitting in the seat of scoffers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. So He actually rejoices in times of solitude from society. Solitude, I think, should be looked at, especially if it's put upon us, 
is an opportunity to reflect on things we would not ordinarily be able to do, and we should make sure we're reflecting on the right things. And for most people, if they're put into solitude, it's shown, at least demographically, they go crazy. It was Richard Warmbrand who was actually put into a hole in Romania, and it was a three-year period of constant tortures and isolation. And some of the stuff, if you actually read his writings, because he survived, it came to the United States and, um, and spoke at many churches in the States. And his testimony is written down so he can read about it. It gets a little weird, but you would sound a little weird too if you were in a hole for three years, right? <clears throat> you might not be seeing things really soberly and clearly. It, it does something to your mind. But he survived it and actually um, would be counted among those who meditated on the Word. And he, um, of course, David's preaching to sheep. Richard Warrenbrand was preaching to rats. So you think about that. And it literally says those things. I've read Richard Warrenbrand's uh, book. I think you pretty much can get it free. It's always one of these freebies offered. And uh, you can read about that. It's a hard read, though. You've got to kind of be in the, in the mood to read about some martyrdom type stuff. But, but it's, it's really eye-opening. Now... He spent time um, in solitude from society, and he chose to rejoice. And rejoice is a command, right? The Bible says rejoice. Again, I will say rejoice. So we are commanded to take joy in the right things. Second, he spent time there meditating on the law of the Lord. So he's, he's in solitude. He's meditating on the law of the Lord. You, you know how it is. You could think about a lot of things in certain circumstances, right? What do you think about when you're at the dentist? You're in the dentist chair. You know what I think about? I'm quoting all the scriptures on fear in my mind. And, um, but let me tell you something. I, I don't have to say a word. I remember going and getting a microscopic surgery on a tooth. And I remember uh, spending time in an office where the, the dentist, well-educated lady, um, she, her religion was in kind of an Eastern mystical type religion. Uh, but as I was sitting there and I was, I was going over scripture that I memorized and, um, and I'm not real great at that, but I had a few and I'm going through when I am afraid I put my trust in you and God, whose word I can praise, what can flesh do to me? And I'm thinking, I always stop at what can flesh do to me. And I'm thinking there's a whole lot, God, that flesh could do to me right now. I have to go into another verse. But <clears throat> nonetheless, I'm thinking through Scripture. And I'm not saying a word, but in the midst of that, um, the dentist stops and it's like, she could tell I was meditating on something. I was meditating and she knew I was a pastor. And I guess she didn't see anybody that ever had a calm disposition in the midst of what she was about to do to me. But it really does make a difference more than you probably can tell if you've spent some time in the day meditating on the law of the Lord. Because I didn't really feel that calm and serene, but evidently it conveyed it. And <clears throat> I think what we see here is that uh, David, again, he's not pouting. He's not out. He's out there by himself. Right. And we, we hear stories in the Bible about 
how he fought against wild beasts in this period. I mean, he's the only one that can defend them. And he has his staff and he has his uh, crook to deal with those things. He has to protect those sheep. He alone, young man, is going to have to figure out how to deal with those wild animals that try to kill those sheep. And so he started his day meditating, not pouting, not, not wishing he had other circumstances, not being discontent, coveting after others, but he, he's spending his time choosing to rejoice and meditate on the Word And he's likely composing this psalm under a tree by a stream. And that did two things. One, it negatively kept the leaf from being scorched. And two, it positively enabled the tree to bear fruit. And so to him, this is a good illustration of one who avoids bad company and spends his time instead thinking on God's word. It's like a leaf that doesn't wither as he would view. So is, so is the righteous that's meditating on God's Word. But the one who doesn't, right? The sun scorches and withers that leaf. And I think that's a great picture for us. Is you know Those who thrive in the Christian life, they understand Christ is the vine and we're the branches and we abide in Christ and Christ in us. And what happens? We bear much fruit. And that, that, um, that John 15 that I'm quoting, one of the first texts I preached at the church here was John 15 on the vine. And I preached it again later, a couple years later in John 15. And I learned even more about that text. But the one thing that's always struck me about that text is the encouragement it provides is that you're always growing as a Christian believer more than you think you are. Your, your perspective and self-judgment on your growth is really a futile effort. You're, you're not called to focus on trying to figure out if you're growing. Nobody's sitting there in their adolescent years looking at it and saying, wow, I must be growing right now. No, it's the other people around them that see the growth. And for the Christian, growth will be seen by others only when you're spending time with God's Word. And you're not, because if you don't, what happens is you, you, you wither up because let's just imagine the sun being really beating down on a leaf. Imagine the circumstances of life week in and week out, all the pressures, all the heat of the, of the day, every day, beating down on the Christian. And, and it withers you. It it dries you up, if you would. You begin to just be, be, you don't have a sap left in you, let's put it that way. And this may sound very allegorical. I'm just trying to convey the picture that David's giving. David's looking at the natural environment around him. He's saying, that, that makes me see what a, a Christian's meditating on the Word is like. He's like, he's like a leaf that doesn't, doesn't get withered. But there's an opposite to it. The one who does. And uh, I know it's a struggle for some, um, some that have been unfortunately taught really a functional salvation by works is they're so wore out by 
having been taught the Christian life is all about what they do, that they, they despair because they're, they're trying to do more and more and more and more. And it, it's, instead of energizing them, it's, it's wearing them out. And I've had, I've had especially young men come to me and they'll say, you know, I, I, I'm just, I don't know if I want to do this or do this. And, you know, some of them sometimes you just want to tell them, well, just stop doing all of it. But I've changed my counsel on that. And I'll, I'll say, look, I want you to just step back and realize why it's so important. Why do you need to hear from God in the beginning of your day? And I think this psalm tells you. You know, it, it keeps you from withering, keeps you um, full of sap, per se, spiritually. It, it gives you the strength. Why do you pray? Because you need to obtain things for the given day. You need to cast your cares on the Lord um, or you go out empty, right? And it should be, it should be that you overflow. But if you're not going to get anything from God and you're not going to be filled up with God and be refreshed with the daily bread He provides, you're not able to give anybody anything. And you might do well, all of us might do well, to really assess when we're feeling kind of like the flame has gone down or we feel withered or dry or we have no spiritual sap in us. Is you know, It doesn't mean that we go and try to earn it, but the whole point is not, you're not coming to earn this. You're coming to get, it's kind of like Spurgeon said in Faith's checkbook. He's giving you a blank check every day to fill out, cash in and enjoy all the, the bounties and pleasures that God gives you in Christ. And the question is, will you not use it? Will you just let it sit there, bury it? Or will you actually cash in on what God's given you? Or let's put another analogy. You know, you got to, a wonderful breakfast laid there before you to eat, to be nourished and strengthened for the work that has to be done out in the scorching heat of the day. Um, it would be foolish, be foolish for a farmer to go out there and day after day after day after day and not eat. And weary themselves. They're, they're not going to be productive. They're not, they're not going to be able to do the work with the same energy and productivity. Yes, they probably can get work done but they won't get a, a, the success and as much work done without being nourished because God's made us to be physical, physically nourished so we might be spiritually strong as well. So all this is a matter of taking time to get alone with God for, for David was a delight. It was something he gets to do. And we really got something wrong if we view it any other way. There needs to be a, you know, stop the press, reassess but it doesn't mean that we don't do it anymore it just means we need to change the way we do it and the attitude we do it with so that we can be um, properly energized to face the day and that's what David was doing he he saw the difference in life from spending time being contented in God then so he took time to get alone with God second he he noticed some things during the labors of the day, um, applying what he learned from the word to his view of the world. So he's meditated on the law of the Lord here in the first um, few verses. And the next thing he observes is the agricultural operations which he may have taken part in. For example, threshing of the wheat. 
He notices how easily the wind blows away the chaff. And he sees the chaff just being blown away. And, and, and again, he's not coming up with that picture because he's great. He's coming up with that picture because he's meditated on the Word. When you meditate on the Word, you're able to see the world better and rightly. You don't see it the same way as the world does because you've been in the Word. And when you see the chaff blowing off in there, you start to see things differently. You start to see God's creation differently and you see meaning in it. You see illustration in it of things. And what he notices is the, the wind blows away the chaff. He sees this as a good picture of the lives of whose company he disdains. He obviously was around people at times that were, were for what the Bible calls was worthless men. Useless, unstable people who would do nothing but bring him down. Nothing but corrupt him with their counsel. The kind of people you see there, the wicked. Um, those who, whose way is sinful. Those, those who scoff. Those who spend all their time scoffing and mocking. And he sees this as a picture that Ultimately, that goes further, uh, if, you, if you read down further, he takes the picture that they'll be swept away from his presence when Christ judges all men as given him by the Father. And, and let me explain why I mentioned Christ specifically. You say, I don't see Christ exactly in this psalm. A Christian can't read the psalms without Christ in them anymore because they know who they're about. They know this psalm's about Christ. Remember? Psalm uh, uh, Luke 24, when he walked with the uh, men on the road of Emmaus and he explained to them the things concerning himself and all the scriptures, and, and that included the Psalms, the writings, the law. So we can't read Psalm 1 without also seeing Christ in the Psalm. And um, Isaac Watts, this is something that... Uh, I didn't realize this. It makes every other Psalter or um, Psalms put to song book look minuscule in comparison. Because Isaac Watts's Psalms, and we, re we actually sing some of them. We sing, uh, Oh God, our help of in ages past. Right? That's based on Psalm 91. I think it was, I think it was Psalm 91. We, but Oh God, our help of ages past is, a, is actually Watts writing and, and uh, putting it to poetry to sing. And he was criticized because when he wrote his Psalms of David, he actually mentions, he said, I, I refuse to let Christ out of it to, to not mention Jesus in these Psalms. When I see of the bloods of bulls and goats, I'm going to the sacrifice of Christ that they pointed to. So if you read... If you read the Psalter that was written by Isaac Watts, it's full of what those Psalms pointed to. And I think, I'm convinced that's the right way, the right way to write a Psalm book for the church to sing. We should never leave Christ out. So I learned a lot just studying Watts recently. Let me read um, actually a phrase because I had to get the the Psalms of David, you can find a pretty inexpensive ebook version on this and uh, be able to look it up yourself. But on Psalm 1, he writes several, several Psalms 
to sing to it. And this is just the one stanza. Sinners in judgment shall not stand amongst the sons of grace when Christ the judge at his right hand appoints his saints a place. That's Watts um, taking Psalm 1 to put to music. He really, he proceeds, he proceeds Wesley, he proceeds all these great writers and great musicians. Um, Watts is one of the greats. He's one of the ones that you want to study if you, if you want to learn music and, and uh, hymnody, if you want to call it that. So the idea, I think, is here is when David views creation and work before him, he interprets some aspects of these as pointing to the judgment of the wicked and the reward of the righteous. His meditation on the book of Scripture fuels his interpretation of the book of creation. And when I say book of creation, it's just a way of saying this whole world that God has made that reveals the glory of God and gives it worshipful clarity and hope. So you spend time in the Word. This is his routine. You begin to view the world differently, even in your work. You begin to see the things in your work differently. <clears throat> and, and then lastly, the way it ends is in the watches of the night, he encourages his soul of a darker day coming for the wicked, but a brighter day for the righteous. I think sometimes we get consumed um, in our daily routine, especially at night, with just merely the, the, the dark day coming. But we forget there's always a brighter day for the righteous. He encourages his own soul here. He instructs others as well in verses 4 and 5 to hold fast to our faith in Christ at God's right hand, however difficult it is. And we'll be glad we did. But we'll be sorry if we follow the way of the wicked. Because, of course, what does it say about the way of the wicked? Right? The way of the wicked will perish. But the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So our faith is called to look to God Especially, especially when we don't understand or know the way. Trusting He knows the way. And He will thus lead those who are righteous by faith through Jesus Christ to life and never to destruction. You, church, were not predestined for destruction, but for life. For life. Let's stand together. And sing to our God. We're going to be there in the last um, psalm mentioned. This is my Father's world, number 31. Let's stand together. We'll come back for the benediction.